Welcome back for another beer and Brexit. This is one I'm very, very excited about, I have to say. Heidi Allen has got the best bio, which I'm going to go through in descending order of importance. She was born in Wakefield. Keithley. There we go. Keithley. Well, near Wakefield. I, I, I grew I'm, up in Wakefield. I'm bigging you up. Okay. Right. <laughs> Wakefield's <laughs> better than Keithley, is it? Yeah, right, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> she studied astrophysics which I would talk to you about, but I've got nothing to say. <laughs> she once ran a pub in St Albans called The Farmer's Boy. I which did. apparently, according to camera, is the only pub in St Albans that has its own microbrewery. Correct. All right, we might get onto that, actually, because that's, that's really interesting. Now, you also say you, you, you decided that politics was your calling after the Tottenham riots, and then you went on to be a councillor and then stood for the seat of South Cambridgeshire. That's right, yeah. Okay, I should let you know we are filming this tonight, and unlike some uh, downmarket TV channels, we are actually broadcasting as we go, so we won't be censoring. Uh... <laughs> How was it, by the way? How was How what? I got news for you? Well, uh, what was your best joke? Clearly, not good enough. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> they chose not to air it. It was really good. It was good fun. Um, Ian Hislop was um, very friendly. Paul Merton is wired differently to the rest of us. It's fair to say. Um, but no, it was great and just a dreadful shame, but I guess you'll get to see it on Dave at some point in two years' <laughs> time years or whatever. Time. Yeah. <laughs> no, really they said they're going to air it. Mm, just a slightly out of topicalness, really, given that's the nature of the programme. Well, that's but... how I watch it, so you'll have one Oh, there you go, then. Yeah, <laughs> it, might be, it might seem funnier, then. So, I, mean, I suppose a slightly more... I mean, this is chuck you in at the deep end to start with. Are you one of those people that thinks that the BBC is biased? Oh, goodness me. Um... Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Small talk is over. Uh, no. Maybe, sometimes, possibly, but not deliberately. All right, because I mean, one of the best things, one of the best lines we've had in Beer and Brexit, when Rory Stewart did it a couple of months ago, and he came up with a series of things that both Andrew Adonis and Nigel Farage had said about the BBC and said, this is the state we're in now, where both sides are using the language of betrayal, of treachery. But you, there's a danger to that, isn't there? Of course there is. Um, I mean, I really don't like talking about him, but I can't help it at the minute, Nigel Farage. Um, he's, um, we should behave like the New Zealand Prime Minister, really, shouldn't we, and just not mention his name at all. Um, to see him on Mar the other day, yeah. I mean, he's just creating his own weather, isn't he? Yeah. It's, it's all an act, I'm convinced of it. But I, um, you know, call me, call me old-fashioned, I'm a little bit proud of the BBC. Yeah. So I, um, you know, they've never been anything other than honest and good and very professional towards me. Now they've got to wear it after that, <laughs> yeah. no doubt about it. So, for some people, if, you wa if you're watching riots in Tottenham and it makes you think, I want to go into politics, it's slightly counterintuitive to join the Tories. Um, maybe. <laughs> some might say. Yeah. Um, other parties are available. Um, well, I didn't... I, um, as I've discovered, and if there are, <laughs> then you make them. Um, I, um, I just instinctively joined the Tories. I mean, it was a, a very late thing. I was not involved in politics at all, literally not engaged. I wasn't a member of a party. I didn't even really know that you could, to be absolutely honest. But it was watching the Tottenham riots on the news that just shook me from my comfort zone. It just looked to me like the country was really in trouble and needed a hand. And I was running my own business. I grew up with a very powerful German mother while Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. It was just, it was only ever going to be Tory um, for a while. Oh, but, uh... When you, when you got into the parliamentary party, did you look around and say, here are loads of people like me? <laughs> what I thought when I joined, because it was quite a big intake in 2015, I forget now, but I think it must have been around about the 100 mark. Mm -hmm. The first thing that surprised me was that no point where any of us sat down and go, right, so let's have a look at your CV. What's your background? Oh, hello. Um, Sorry, just somebody answered. That's all right. Um, there was... Um, <laughs> not saying it's going to be nice to, to me, but just saying no. Um, nobody at any point um, asked the question about what skills had come in mm -hmm. or what people's expertise was or their background. And that just seemed to me, from a business point of view, you're presented with a load of new recruits. Surely the first thing you do is ask the question, right, what have we got here? Who can we develop? Who, who's going to be difficult? Who do we need to put in a team? And that, from day one, seemed to me an extraordinary waste of ability and not how you would run a business, let alone a country. OK, and, that, and that's, that, I think, is true across the parties. I don't think that's... I'm sure it is, yeah. ...conservative party. Did you think David Cameron was a good Prime Minister? Um, so, I wasn't... He wasn't there very long <laughs> while yeah. I was an MP. <laughs> I, I mean, I was clearly attracted or decided to join the Tory party while he was Prime Minister, his big society. That resonated with me. 
when I was there for the brief time that he was Prime Minister, I must be honest at the time, I thought he was too smooth. I felt he wasn't really connected. You're from Cattlethorpe, I'm from Wakefield. I didn't really feel that he necessarily understood how people like that lived. It's not his fault, it's just how you're born and the environment you grow up in. But looking back um, now, compared to what we have now, actually, I don't think he was too terrible. Okay. Because uh, things are relative. It's your bar obviously. getting lower all the time. <laughs> what, what was it, above everything else, that prompted your decision to leave the Conservative Party then? It was um, a mix of things, and decisions like that don't come quickly. You know, they kind of build up on you. So Brexit was the catalyst, was the thing that finally showed to me that the way politics was operating was dysfunctional and just not fit for purpose when the country is facing the biggest crisis. It literally falls apart. The big parties can't do anything. So that was the, um, the indicator that the system was as broken as I had suspected it was on day one, just by the way that they operated. But my personal red line, we've all got our red lines as politicians, my personal red line was um, how the government was rolling out universal credit. So I'd got very involved in welfare by sitting on the Work and Pension Select Committee since I was elected in 2015. And it wasn't even that money had been taken out of it because we'd managed to get big chunks of cash put back in at pretty much every spring and autumn statement. But it was the detail that really let it down. You know, anybody that's seen the film I, Daniel Blake, I have to tell you, it is an active reflection of life if you struggle with IT skills, if you've got mental health issues, the system is that impenetrable. And it was that lack of attention to detail for the most vulnerable. The fact that I'd had to ask Frank Field, the chair of our select committee, to join me with a camera crew to go around the country to the poorest parts of the UK to show how bad it was. The fact that I had had to do that because I'd run out of ways of convincing my government, mm. that told me it was game over. That's just not very Tory behaviour, though, is it? I mean... It would appear not. So, but austerity was a, was a deliberate political choice. And at the time it was made, did you back it? Or did you have your doubts about it? So, say, two aspects. It is the funding, and I'll come on to that in one second, but it's also the behaviour, the way that, you know, the system can be tailored to be more compassionate. That's just a choice about how you operate it. And it was that rather than the money angle, actually, that was the final straw for me. On the austerity point, yes, I did vote for it, because guess what? When those budgets were put to us, I don't know, one month into being a new MP in 2015, I'll say it, did I know what I was voting for? No, I didn't. Guess what? You come from business. You're not suddenly an expert on welfare policy and government budgets. I got onto the Work and Pension Select Committee, I think, two months later, and then I started to learn. But guess what, MPs, if you're not educated on day one, if you're not briefed on everything, you're going to get things wrong. But knowing what you do now, in terms of both the impacts you saw when you were travelling around the country yeah. with that camera crew and what it's done to our politics in terms of the impact it's had on the Brexit vote and things like that, do you think it was a mistake? What, to vote for those guys? No, to, to pursue a policy of austerity. I'm not holding you responsible oh, for um, one vote. But... No, in the first instance. But like any, any policy, you have to review it regularly enough to check whether it's still working. What's the evidence? If you find out after a year... It's, it's, it's pushing harder than we expected it to, or guess what, the economy's changed, or inflation's done something different. You have to be dynamic and reactive, and that's the bit that they haven't done. You know, the benefits freeze is still there three years on, no matter how, where the cost of living or inflation's gone. No, no business, no organisation sets policies and then is wedded to them for years and years. You have to review whether they're working or not, and if they're causing harm, then you have to change them. OK. Now, you said that Brexit was the sort of... the. the the deciding factor. By the time you came to reflect on your position in the Conservative Party, did you think that you'd changed or that the party had changed? Without doubt, the party had changed, totally. In what way? Well, how can, you know, whatever you thought about um, the Tory party, they did have a reputation for business, for protecting business and the economy and jobs. You might argue about the how or the undercurrent of austerity, but whatever happened, the Tory party was about business. We all know what Boris said. I'm very tempted to repeat it often, but my husband tells me I shouldn't. I should rise above it and not repeat those words. Um, and pushing us towards a no deal. Mm. I mean, how could a Tory party ever, ever... Well, I'll tell you how, because the Prime Minister has been bullied into submission by Nigel Farage and the far-right element of the Tory party in the House of Commons, and she has backed herself into a corner and become almost um, a hostage prisoner unable to show any leadership whatsoever. And it has happened unbelievably quickly. Principally, I suspect, because we haven't had a decent opposition. 
to keep pulling it back in the do, other direction. Do you think those of your former colleagues who now talk about no deal as if it would be no big deal, so to speak, uh, do you think they mean what they're saying or they're just playing to the crowd, i.e. the electorate that is the Tory party members? Do I don't think, think they understand it. All of them? Or the, certainly the majority, the, the many I talked to. There's one junior Brexit minister whose name I won't repeat chatting to them in the vote lobby once about the implications of no-deal Brexit and did they really understand what that meant for manufacturing, car manufacturing. Oh, it'll be fine. Yes, I said, but do you understand how parts flow, how that works? Do you understand Kaizen? Do you understand, you know, industrial practice? Well, no, no, it'll, be it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be a bit bumpy. It'll be fine. And that is the answer you get every time. There is no knowledge there. And had those questions been asked on day one, what's your background, what's your CV, then maybe you'd have the right people in the right jobs. OK. Now, because we don't really know you and your part, this is going to be a bit mean. OK. But we're going to triangulate your political position using a very clever technique as right. follows. Are you closer politically to Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> or Jeremy Corbyn? Oh, my God. <laughs> this is like worse than... This is science. This, <laughs> this is science. By like the end of this, it'll be like one of those not, apps that tells you to vote for. Can we not do snog, marry, avoid instead? <laughs> yeah, this is far more fun. Oh. <laughs> well, we, oh. can do, we can do that for those two as well, if you like. Uh, Gosh. This is going to haunt me forever, isn't it? Whichever way I go. What do you mean by close? Well, ideologically, who, if you had it. to pick one in terms of their political ideology. I mean, you could be equidistant, if you like, or... Yeah, can I be? OK, yeah. Can I be offensive? But not for all these questions, because right, okay. I quite like some of these. Jess Phillips or Ruth Davidson? Jess Phillips. Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair? Well, it depends in the context. Oh, Lord. If, if right. it's about strength and a woman just kicking ass and saying, no, I'm powerful, then Margaret Thatcher. If it's politically, then Tony Blair. If Tony Blair decided he wanted to be one of your MPs, would you allow him to stand? No. Why? <laughs> um, back. <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the worst part, as I've discovered, getting into politics, once you're tarnished, you're tarnished. And it's unforgivable, and it's very different to any other environment I've worked in, but the fact is you are. And for all the, um, the great stuff people might think of him as being responsible for, the Iraq war hangs around, I'm afraid. And the final one? Okay. Anna Subri or Mike Gapes? Oh. <laughs> oh, that is mean. Yes. That is really mean. Oh, I'm going to go Mike. Just because we're getting to know each other. And he's so smiley. But we will come back to this because... You, know, you can't because, not No, no, Mike. he's very nice. But they have, uh, they have quite different politics around some things, don't they? Yeah, but the question doesn't have to be about politics. It can be about people, can't it? Yeah, no, no. But we will come back to the politics. I mean, just in terms of the practicalities, because I'm sure you get bored of questions about this, but we've got to touch on it. Has setting up a new party been more challenging than you thought it would be? Um, it has been... Yes. Well, not, no, not even than I thought it would be, because that suggests I've got some experience and I knew what it would be like to set up a party. And, you know, I became an MP three and a bit years ago. So um, I had no knowledge or um, expectation of what it would be like. Um, a different way to answer the question, have I learnt a hell of a lot? And if I was doing it again tomorrow... I would, would I do it differently? Yes, I would. Do you, I mean, did you think you had the right sort of backroom staff on board to start off with? And, I mean, the one thing that's striking, looking from the outside, is the Brexit party gets set up and all of a sudden you've got to confront it with a stream of very slick videos, a very clear message, a logo that's acceptable to the Electoral Commission. I mean, you know, all those sorts of things. Which is a house that's fallen on its side, have you noticed? By no, I'm not way. saying it's a good logo. Mm. Uh, I'm just saying I mean, it's a logo that issue, you will see on so. your ballot paper. But... And it's just watching purely from the outside, just in terms of how you do politics. Yes. Did, I mean, why, why did they get hold of such good people? Because they've got know? cash. All right, it's a money thing. It's a hugely money thing. Because, you know, we were very deliberate. And it wasn't me setting up a party. Yeah. It was we. We were the independent group. You know, the, the guys from Labour were involved way before um, Sarah, Anna and, and I joined. So there was some, some foundations of a structure there already. But the big difference is we made a deliberate decision and we were being courted by wealthy business people. You know, they, they, they court you all the time about wanting to get involved. But the risk is, before you've formed and you, you've been able to express your um, kind of essence of who you are, like anything in life, people give you money, they own you. And if you don't want to be owned, you have to be prepared to go in with nothing. So when you are starting literally with a blank piece of paper, 
compared to Farage, who let's um, not forget, this is his second time now. So he's, he's doing it second time around and he's mm. learning from what he did um, rightly or wrongly last time. This is our first go and we have started from zero. I mean, literally nothing. Can, I mean, can you just give us a sense of what, 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 what the difference is between being where you are now and where you were, being in a small party rather than a big one? I mean, how does that sort of affect things? I mean, you've got to tidy up after yourselves, after meetings or something, or... <laughs> well, know, I always did that anyway. Wash up your own cups now, or... Um, it, um... I mean, I'm not... I'm not I mean, this, this is the beginning. This isn't a formed party yet, really. Mm. We, we became a party much more swiftly than we anticipated, purely because there was this... Um, suddenly European elections were on the horizon. If they hadn't been there, we would be busy developing national policy and we wouldn't be a formed party as yet. You know, so this is a vehicle to deliver mm -hmm. the EU elections. Um, but, you know, you, ha you have to... You have to try. It's not going to be perfect. Farage is a well-oiled machine. Um, would, would we do things differently? Yes, we would. But the point is... Nobody gives you a handbook to do this. But is there stuff that you, you suddenly think now, wow, yeah, that was because I was a Tory that I, I don't know, got yeah. on this TV programme yeah. a lot or... Not really. I mean, t to be honest, from the point of my maiden speech in the October in 15, I've pretty much done my own thing anyway within the Tory mm. party. Um, I have never gelled naturally in the environment that tells me what to do and how to think. But one of the accusations so, you hear about your party is that it's a bunch of people who are used to the privileges of being in one of the big two, who kind of assumed they'd carry over because, because it was them, and, and failed to understand that when you're in a small party, the rules of the game are fundamentally different. Do you think there's an element of truth to that? What do you mean by privilege? Well, in the sense that you will get on the media quite a lot. You don't oh, have right, to fight okay. for attention in the same way. I mean, there's a lot of rather sort of smug-sounding Lib Dem uh, comms people on Twitter who say, well, they, you know, they've got to learn their place. You've got to fight for it now. Yes, and, and absolutely. But I tell you what, with it, compared to, for example, my experience of being in the Tory party, yes, you have to fight. Yes, nothing is taken for granted. Yes, you have to earn everything, every bit of column inch, every piece on, on a radio station or a news station. But I'm free. I'm free to try and create something. And it might be hard and we might fail and we might make spectacular mistakes along the way. But I tell you what, at least I'm doing something I believe in rather than being shackled to some organisation that is like a tanker ship and cannot see the car crash of the, the nation's future coming towards it and is choosing to do nothing about it. I would rather be free and make mistakes. We'll come back to that though, but presumably that's the case till you have policies. Because at that point, if you vote on policies, you might have to go out and defend policies you don't agree with or that you voted against or there's a particular moment of freedom you're experiencing now because you all agree on the one policy that is of relevance yeah, to this. I, I don't even mean in that regard. I mean, the, the freedom of doing what you believe is right, of working with colleagues that you think you can have something in common with and you can have a central aim that you both believe in and you knock around policy till you find a compromise. Creating stuff. Yeah, nobody gets everything they want in life, but creating stuff and having a hand in that is far more liberating and you're more likely to own it than if you're just told... You know, you are literally... I'm sure it's the same in the Labour Party. You are literally told what to say. I mean, I find that desperate. And that well, they all say be. different things in the Labour Party, so it's not... Well, that's true, actually. <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> their photocopying isn't quite so <laughs> yeah. accurate. But, you know, when, when, it's, when um, Parliament is behaving as it normally does, I mean, you are literally handed pieces of paper, suggested helpful questions, interventions to the minister. I mean, seriously? <coughs> so I would much rather we try and find something. And not everything we would agree on, of course not. But at least if we've created it from the ground up, you, you feel more committed to it, put it that way. Yeah, oh, OK, I see that. Now, how did you get to be interim leader? Was it sort of rock, paper, scissors in the office? Or, I mean, what... We didn't, Snap, get, to, we didn't get to see a process. I mean, what, can you shed some light on what happened? Or were you the only... Did everyone else take a step back? In there was nobody else in the room, on films, so... Um, so essentially, I mean, I'll be honest, my expectation, most of our expectation, expectations was that it was going to be Chucker. Really? Oh, really? Was it not? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. and therein lies the point. <laughs> I, that was my belief, because it was Chucker who'd first come and talked to me about this idea of a new party, so that was my assumption. And um, as we were... I mean, to be fair, we weren't even looking at picking a leader while we were the happy Tiggers in the independent group. It was this having to form a party for the Electoral Commission. Then you get the application form. Ooh, crumbs, we need a leader. Right, let's pick one. And um, it was... 
a cell, it was a, coll a collective decision based on the fact that if we wanted to attract other MPs potentially or candidates in EU elections, we, it was really important to us that we didn't just attract people who've been in politics all their lives or people that were deeply tri tribal. And I'm the newest, I was the least apolitical, I'm the work, one that's worked more cross-party than anybody else since I've been an MP, and I very recently have come from business from the outside world. So we just, in terms of a, um, a brand, if you like, to put on the side of the tin, um, that I was the best person for the job. And how, what does, what does interim mean? It means until we have our first proper conference in conference season in the autumn, when members get to vote alongside MPs. And would you like to keep doing it? Um, possibly. Possibly. I don't know. Are you Are enjoying it? Um, it's hard. Yeah. It's but, really hard. But you're in charge. But politics doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> <laughs> Is Theresa May in charge? Discuss. <laughs> 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 you know, your name might be on the tin, but as we all know, politicians have views and egos and all the rest of it. So it, it's cat herding, I think, more than being in charge. <laughs> what? When you did your candidate selection, what went wrong? And has the vetting company given your money back? Um, what went wrong was we had 3,700 applications to whittle down to 70 in the space of about three days. And you had a firm, didn't you? Didn't you yeah, we, well, we had some researchers that did some work for us, and, you know, you track back through as much social media history as you can, but in limited time, you make mistakes. Um, but the point was, there were two that were identified after the event, and very swiftly we told them they needed to stand down, and they did. And that was done within a matter of hours. And... I don't want to go too much into this, actually. We've got to ask you, why, why have you taken the decision not to fight Peterborough? Um, we, well, we tried really hard, and most people, I'm sure you'd have, you'd have read the snippets in the press, we got literally within a cat's whisker of having a joint independent People's Vote candidate that we, the Greens and the Lib Dems, would have backed. And about two hours from literally Femi, who was the candidate, had the papers in his hand ready to hand in. The, he was put under enormous pressure by the People's Vote campaign. Um, and that was too much pressure for somebody um, like him who was not... You know, this is a rough and tumble business. It's not pretty and milk and ambrosia, it really isn't. And he was put in a very, very difficult position. And I don't blame him. So you don't blame him for deciding not to stand? No. It's huge. When you decide to stand for elected office, it is huge. Hmm. And you have to be comfortable. And you shouldn't do it if you feel that you've got pressure being put on you. That's not right. So will you campaign against each other? I mean, will, in the European elections, say, are you going to target... I mean, I noticed the other day that the Greens had a thing on Twitter saying, if you don't like Brexit and you don't want to vote for a party that was complicit in the coalition, vote for us. And I thought, oh, here we go. Uh, no, you will hear no negative campaigning from us at all. No negative campaigning. I never have. I wasn't when I stood to be a district councillor in St Albans. I'm not about to start now. The Lib Dems have done brilliantly well in the local elections. I suspect they'll do very well in these MEP elections as well, and good luck to them, and the same to the Greens. But the point is, what we might be able to offer is a home for pro-Remain voters who would not necessarily perhaps agree with the Greens on austerity policy or mm. have different views to the Lib Dems and, or the SNP is another character if they believe in unity. So I think we offer potentially a home to other voters that would not naturally be attracted to those parties, but there will be no negative campaigning at all. Can I just be cynical for a minute? You may. You can't be that chuffed the Lib Dems did well, because it kind of undermines your reason for being, doesn't it? No, I, I, dis I disagree. And, and this is, you know, my friend Harriet calls this political muscle memory, that people are just entrenched. This is how politics is. It's adversarial. That's how, it, how we behave. Mm. Why isn't it OK for Lib Dems to do well? They're brilliant locally. They're brilliant in South Cams. They're doing a great job running my local council. They took control from the, from the Tories last year. Why can't it be OK to say well done to them? Because they share the same centre-ground, moderate values that we do. But you're in competition with them. As I say, I think we are potentially looking at taking a vote that wouldn't go to them. It should be complementary, not in competition. So, I mean, this sort of brings me to our next question, which is what are you all going to do in terms of seats when we have a general election? Are you going to... Have you made a decision on this, whether you fight the seats you're in or whether you go looking for better seats? Well, to... speaking for myself, I will never stand anywhere other than South Cambridgeshire. That's my home. I'm not interested in standing where I sit. It's the best constituency on the planet. I don't care what anybody thinks. We've got, we've got more Nobel Prizes than anywhere on the planet put together, and it's just it's amazing. I love it. So I will never stand anywhere else. Um, have there been... That is a very odd definition of the best constituency. Oh, it's anyway, you need to come. You need to come. <laughs> I mean, Kettlethorpe and Wakeford are great, but come to South Cambridge. It's amazing. Amazing place, and the people are just fantastic. Um, have there been kind of loose chats about, well, well, we need to think about what happens if a general election comes? Has there anything formal being agreed? No, there hasn't. But do I feel... But we could have one quite soon. 
Well, but that's the other... You, that's the other thing, we don't know. I heard a rumour somewhere, maybe September. I don't know if anybody else has picked up on that rumour. I don't know. I'm kind of hoping it's not true. Um, I would hope that, put it this way, I would hope that the general election threat is sufficiently far enough away that we have time to come together and work out a plan so that we're not in competition with each other. So if there's a motion of no confidence in the government, you would vote for the motion, presumably, whenever it came? Well, that's a tough question, and we get asked that a lot, because the bottom line, it's, it's kind of like saying... With, with the way that the parliamentary arithmetic is at the moment, and the way polls are at the moment, it's like saying, well, I don't have confidence in the Theresa May, which is true, I don't, but I have more confidence in Jeremy Corbyn, but I don't. <laughs> so I'm not actually sure how a vote of no confidence in a general election helps the country at all. If it were a few years down the line and we were more established as a brand and we were living in, in harmony with the Lib Dems and we'd created something new and powerful and I felt we had an opportunity to win lots of seats, then go for it. But right now, the choice would be Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn. And I'm not sure I would rate Jeremy Corbyn any more highly than I would over Theresa May. But is that true? It might be Jeremy Corbyn, you know, in a coalition with the Lib Dems and the SNP, say, in which case it would be a very different sort of government. One where it, was, it might be one in which has pledged mm. itself to not one but two referendums under those circumstances in Scotland and I mean, it's a, it's a poor choice, isn't it? But the point is, it's unknown. And there is a little bit of me that's better the devil you know. I'm not sure I would necessarily... Can you imagine a government worse than this? I think it could be. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nigel Farage as Prime Minister. There we go. That would most definitely. Well, I mean, that's the other option, I suppose, <laughs> is you get a coalition with with the Brexit Party involved. But I think that's slightly less likely. But so. Well, Chris Blunt seems quite keen. <laughs> well, that's true. But could you could you really hold your heads up if you'd voted to continue with this government? <clears throat> I think it's a really difficult question, and I know that politicians always sound like they're wriggling when they're answering it, and I don't mean to be wriggling, but the point is that question has a different um, outcome depending on the, when you ask it. If you're asking it to me today yeah. versus if you're asking me it in two years' time. So, it, you know, I can't say what my answer would be on any particular day. Right here, today, right now, would I support a vote of no confidence? No, I wouldn't, because I think the last thing we need with, you know, an EU election next week is suddenly to throw it all up in the air with a general election. Ask me that question in six or 12 months and my answer might be different. If I was cynical, which I'm not, I might say your answer is, well, actually, no, because my party's not ready for it and that takes precedence over other considerations. It's, it's not precedence, but it is reality. And, and not because I'm, um, I'm necessarily wedded to I want us to be ready because just for my own self-satisfaction, but because I want, us, I want something to be ready that's good enough to take on the country and lead it. What is the point of preempting that conversation if a better alternative is not yet ready? How does that help the country? Just, just incidentally, um, could you imagine circumstances perhaps after a split when the ERG go off down the Brexit Party route or something like that, where you could, you would rejoin the Conservative Party? Um, no, Thinking. that seems unlikely, um, purely because it strikes me that, that that wing, that is the Conservative Party... I think what's left behind might be something that we might coalesce with, mm. but I, I do genuinely see that wing as being the Tory party now. So no, I couldn't imagine joining that. Why do you think you're polling less strongly in Scotland than in Wales and England? And are you going to put much effort in Scotland? Or focus oh God, these very detailed polling questions, like quick fire round, isn't it? Um, I think, to be fair, I'll I think... give you booze. <laughs> yeah, I'd love <laughs> yeah. to, but I've got a car at the station. Um, the, um, the, the campaign proper is just beginning now, really, leaflets are just hitting the mats. Hours are starting to go out today. All right, okay. Postal votes are going in. Um, our election broadcast went out last night. Mm -hmm. I'm still going to wind up Nigel Farage as much as I possibly can to get him to stop being a chicken and actually have a debate about this. And Chucker comes on it before you. I'm just saying. It, I mean, it, I noticed in the election broadcast. Did that trouble broadcast. you? Well, it made me smile. Did it? Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Well, there's, there's hope for everybody yeah. in that case. Um, but we, know, we are, I mean, we are pushing evenly across the country. The social media will start to hit soon, so we'll see where we end up next week. But, you know, we are coming from a standing start, so um, do I expect to triumph? No, but do I think we will offer an extra Remain home for voters that might boost the Remain vote as a whole? Mm. Then yes, I do. Okay. Why should Nigel Farage debate with you? I mean, isn't the golden rule of a debate that it helps the underdog and you've got to be trapped in it if you're not into it, if you're not the underdog? Why, why, why would he debate with you? Because I think there's, um, and not just me, but all the leaders, but principally his vision is so different, so different hmm? to, I think, any of the other political leaders, actually. And you don't get to assume 
that um, responsibility for delivering that vision. You earn it. And you earn it by having the British people listen to it. And I don't think it's acceptable for him to have such a different view on how life might be without the public being allowed to compare it with what else is on offer. It isn't his country. He doesn't speak for everybody. He may well speak for some. But when you govern, mm. when you are elected, you represent everybody. And on that basis, you have to be prepared to show yourself um, by comparison with others. And to me, he's running scared of, and not being prepared to do that. But he's quite good at it. You remember the debate with Nick Clegg, don't you? I mean, he doesn't address facts. He has a particular style, but he, he's, he's quite effective in uh, targeting his core audience. I so, mean, so, so all the reason why he should be comfortable doing this? So I suppose one question is what... I mean, it's, quite, it's hard to say this in a conversation like this, but you, you see lots of people talking about how you counter Farage. One is to throw his old policy, you know, you said this about people with HIV, you said this about non-Christian refugees, you know, there's a list. And that seems to be water off a duck's back. I mean, how would you it's go about... fuel on the fire, I would argue. Yeah, actually. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you counter him? I mean, you know, in that debate with Nick Clegg, Nick was quite forensic, he was quite factual didn't seem to work. What, what do you do? I feel a little bit, particularly the camera snapping, a little bit like this is that pre-bit before a boxing match. You know, what? <laughs> what, the way in Yeah, what, no, let's not do that. Let's really say. not do that. Um, campaigning's not good for not eating good food. Um, but, you know, kind of, you know, what's your tactics going to be? And actually, if he goes ahead with it, mm. and I've no idea if he will or not, we've got a radio interview at lunchtime tomorrow and Jeremy Vine. Um, but I'm not going to tell him. OK. Fair enough. To be honest. But it might involve a large wet fish, is what I can say. <laughs> I might tune into Jeremy Vine. Uh, is it really credible to have a party that is based on values and not policies? I mean, in that, you're the mirror image of Nigel Farage, aren't you? Who oh, gosh, says, we haven't got any policies, it doesn't matter, this is about principles, this is about betrayal. I mean, you're just doing that from the other side, aren't you? No, and, and you're absolutely right. A party that is based purely on values and not policies is not um, good enough or wouldn't deserve to stay the course. Um, but the point is we haven't developed our national policies yet. So had we not had these EU elections, we would be developing that now. And our intention is to start that work. Pretty, we'll take a breather out of these EU elections and then the, the viewers will go out around the country and we'll start build, building policy um, topic by topic and crucially make sure it's not silo-based as a lot of government policy is at the moment. My travel's looking at poverty. It isn't the DWP necessarily that's the heart of the problem. It's housing, it's mental health, it's education, it's everything. So building policy properly from the ground up takes time. And we need to do that properly. So will we be rushed? Will we pull a full national manifesto out of our back, back pockets just to make people content that we've got some policies? No, because otherwise we're not actually changing politics and we're not trying to do things differently. So, but that will come and it must come. And what do you say to the claim that actually you shouldn't have change in your title because essentially you're a party of the status quo. You want us to stay where we are, you want to stay in the European Union. Why I, I disagree. I mean, I think the direction that our country is at risk of heading in with Brexit of whatever variety changes, particularly for young people. This is change your future. This is grab hold of it and, and send it in the direction that you want it not on the current course, the trajectory that we're on at the moment, it is most definitely changing from our destination and our destiny if we're not careful. All right, I'm going to put some policy questions to you now oh, in a little gosh. quiz again. <laughs> well, just because it's... it's, it's, bit, it's bit, yeah, OK, well, <laughs> I hope you think so. Should the railways be nationalised? <laughs> My gut instinct is no. OK. Should the water companies be nationalised? Likewise. Should we ban zero-hours contracts? I don't think you should ban them, but I think they should be, there should be a better contractual framework around them for the employee, so that it's not the only option that they have. Should the top rate of tax be increased? Possibly, but only on the basis of, pro and this is what we want to do with all our policies, proper evidence around how the economic model responds, because you can't just tweak one thing without it popping up somewhere else. But in theory, it's a possibility. But you see the frustration, don't you, which is... Which is why be... we need time. And no, no, I, do, sure. I do not have policies that I will give you out of my back pocket. Um, I can tell you about things I've heard about, things that interest me, things that we talk about as a group, but I will not be bullied or rushed into making policy. When we do this, we do it properly. Then should you be standing in the European elections? I mean, that's I mean, the frustration, I think, for some people. Yeah. And, and I get it, I get it. But is... I want us to do it properly. These EU elections, as I say, if these hadn't come, we would be doing that work now. <coughs> but, you know, the opportunity to influence, even to a small degree, the direction that our country is taking, we could not ignore that. But isn't... I mean, 
this is this is a weird question in a way. Isn't a way approaching a European like election in this way just inherently Eurosceptic because you're saying what our MPs, what our MEPs do in the European Parliament is totally irrelevant. This is signalling in domestic politics. That's all this is about. I mean, that's not a very European message to send your electors, is it? You've lost me completely. Well, Say that again. In a sense, if you're taking, if you take European elections seriously, which yeah. we never really have in this country, then European elections about electing people on a platform of policies that they will pursue in the European Parliament. Okay. It's policies, but it's also representation because as much comes at us as we might present or want to influence. So it's, you know, and which is something with that I think why people haven't necessarily got as engaged in the EU as they might, because the M MEPs we've had sitting around the table there. You know, imagine yeah. putting Farage back in there. They're hardly going to be in there representing and fighting if they think some piece of legislation no, no, is coming that. up. But all I'm saying is we, we just don't know with Change UK what side of the divide you might be on on a particular directive coming out of Brussels, because we just don't have that sense. And actually, you know, everyone talks about, and I'm, that moment when Anna Soubry said, you know, I thought the coalition was great and the cameras sort of had a couple of uh, <laughs> former Labour colleagues in shot and they didn't <laughs> smile. That uh, there, are, there are hard decisions for you to take and that's one of the reasons why people need to know because actually it seems you can go in one of two ways. It is, but again, I take you back to Harriet's phrase, political muscle memory. Why does this stuff have to be created immediately? Why do we have to have fights about policy differences? Why do we have to have conflict and disagree because Anna's from the Tories and Chuck or Chris is from the Labour? Proper evidence, evidence-based policy isn't actually left or right. Okay, it's we'll come back to correct. evidence. But I suppose one answer would be because isn't it borderline slightly disrespectful of the electorate to say vote for us, we'll tell you what we stand for later? No, because the, these are very different elections. This isn't, we are not, and which is why, so going back to your question about Peterborough, why we okay. wouldn't stand our right. own candidate in Peterborough, because we're not ready. We don't have a national manifesto to present to people, and it would be disingenuous to ask them to vote for us, which is why we wanted to do a collective independent candidate with the Greens and the Lib Dems. Now, I, I want to talk to you about expertise and policy, okay, in, in two ways. I mean, firstly, because there are experts and experts. There are very, very good experts. Margaret Thatcher believed in experts. John McDonnell believed in experts. It's just that Margaret Thatcher would read Hayek and listen to Friedman, and John McDonnell would listen to Simon, Simon Ren Lewis and people like that. You know, you can find an expert to pick your political proclivities. There have to be ideological choices. Experts don't make policy. They'll, they'll give you some evidence about mm. it, but ultimately there's an ideology behind it. So can you just say, can you, can you hide behind expertise in that way realistically? Don't you need to show no, it, your ideological Yes, but, but as you say, but it informs yeah. your policies around whether it's taxation rates or um, spending on education or whatever it might be. It, it informs you, but ultimately, you know, it's about balance. It's about priorities, isn't it? Whether you think HS2 is more important than lifting the national minimum wage or investing in welfare or education or the NHS, it's about choices. So the evidence will be, will be presented in terms of for that policy area, what's the optimum way of delivering the best outcome? And then you have to make choices around spending. Does expertise ever produce answers that clear, do you think? Um, I think if you listen to it properly. Okay. I mean, the other, the, other, the other aspect about expertise that I want to put to you is, in some senses, one of the problems we got ourselves into as a country was the kind of there is no alternative politics, which is, you know, well, the bank's doing that, the EU's doing that, there's a quango doing that, and actually the scope for, a, for democratically elected governments is, is rather narrow because the experts know best. And there was a kind of myth that expertise produced policies that were the best for all, but actually what we subsequently discovered is they have profoundly distributional consequences. The myth, the myth that everyone gets better off at the same rate under expert-driven policies is a myth. And don't, I just wonder sometimes with people like you who talk about expertise that you're, you're underestimating the importance that people place on being able to elect the people that take these choices. Um, well, people like me are people who chose to leave running their business and chose to get yeah. into public service and become an MP. So people like me do have a bit of expertise mm -hmm. in what it's like to be a normal person that's infiltrated the system. So hopefully people like me can combine evidence with political learning and maybe deliver something that is, is more palatable to the British public. But we need a mix. We need a bit of it all. We need some lawyers. We need some scientific we experts. We, oh, you know what? I used to think yeah, that, but yeah. Dominic Grieve has been quite <laughs> handy, as it turned out. We need a blend of all of that, you know, and what's appealing about a lot of our MEP candidates is they've come from all sorts of backgrounds. 
non-political. We've got nurses, we've got GPs, we've got lawyers, we've got chartered surveyors. You need that blend and a blend of good brains and different backgrounds. Not every decision will be perfect, but I feel more confident that the sorts of policies we will create, A, will sell with the British public and will have a decent job of delivering the outcomes that we want. Okay, we're going to talk briefly now. We've, we've put it off for ages about Brexit. Have we? <laughs> no, we haven't directly talked about Brexit. So we've had a, we, had, we had something in on Twitter. We used to do this thing where I looked at the thing on Twitter, but basically my eyes aren't up to it, and I ended up squinting, and we don't do that anymore. So we get them in advance. We've had one in advance, which is, what is your plan, from Captain Cavewoman, in Thank case you, you wondered, Cablewoman. what is the plan for formulating a people's vote question that will gain a majority in... Actually, let me do... We, we had one on Twitter today. Let me do the first one first. How can you possibly get a majority for a referendum in Parliament without the Prime Minister whipping for it? Or Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Somebody has to. Yeah. It'll be hard. Do you see a route to that yet? I mean, you're well short of a majority. Yeah, and we never, to be honest, the, the, the couple of times we've attempted it, we never expected to win at all. We didn't expect to get even a sizable amount of and votes. you hacked off the People's Vote campaign the first time with the amendment, didn't you? Um, no, because what it did, it actually nudged Jeremy Corbyn off the fence a little bit, and it nudged some of the um, Tory ministers to come out so we did Jeremy Corbyn just jump straight back on the fence afterwards? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're right, he didn't stay yeah, off it right. for very long. Um, so, we, so we never, but the point is we never expected it to, to win. People's vote is always, always going to be last chance saloon for MPs for a whole variety of reasons. How their electorate voted, how the economy's doing in their local area, how they feel personally. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole host of things that influence MPs on this subject. So it always was going to be last chance saloon. And the reason it's last chance saloon is because we've been around the block so many times now. I just genuinely, I follow the logic gates of this and try and second guess what might happen next. I cannot see any other procedural route out of this. I just can't, other than putting the decision back to the people. Okay, and even if Parliament got a majority, do you see, how, how does Parliament go about, this is Captain Cablewoman, getting a majority for the question? Because that's almost more divisive, isn't it? Um, well, the Electoral Commission would have a role in that, yeah, of course. Um, so it wouldn't all be about MPs. It, I mean, th th there, are, there are two options that people talk about. It's either the deal, whatever format that is, that emerges from the House of Commons, whether it's the Customs Union, Bolton, or whatever it might be. There's talk of some, they don't call them indicative votes now, what do they call them? There's another word. Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting it begins with D. Yeah. Yeah. The, Proper. Yeah, okay. Whatever. We could almost do audience participation, wouldn't we? Phone <laughs> okay. a friend. Yeah. Um, whatever, whatever that creates, that final deal versus remain, mm -hmm. you could argue, and that's probably the strongest position, that you would have those two on the ballot paper, because the instruction for the people in the referendum was go out there, let's leave the EU, get us a deal to leave the EU. So the Prime Minister's done her best, she's put it through the House Commons, right, and this is the thing. So this is the thing versus where we are now. The other argument, of course, that people put is that they want to have no deal somewhere on the ballot paper mm -hmm. to offer something to people who uh, you know, want a clean Brexit, want WTO terms. Um, and there's an argument for you know, this triple kind of um, preference voting type system that allows people to deal or no deal. And if it's no deal, what kind of no deal? Mm -hmm. um, my, and I've said that I have sympathies. I understand why people want that. The, the couple of things that rankle with me, I think, and I suspect would with MPs as well when it came to it, because as you say, this would be a piece of legislation. No deal is the only thing that has categorically been voted down repeatedly in the House of Commons. So I don't see how there's an appetite to put it back on. There's three things, actually. The second thing is, um, I suspect, from a legal point of view, it would be in breach of the Good Friday Agreement, because a no deal means a hard border in Ireland. So legally, whether you could even mm -hmm. contemplate that. Um, and the third thing, which perhaps sounds um, a little dramatic or a little, um, I don't know, too much self-importance for MPs, but you know, you've got two main jobs as an MP, the security of the country and the economy. What MP genuinely could in their heart, you know, we are elected to represent your constituents to actually say that no deal is okay. From an economic point of view, it would be utterly catastrophic. From a security point of view, from medicines regulation, from getting medicines, you know, the, the chemicals that go in our water that make it safe to drink come from Europe. I mean, there are so many things that we would literally fall off that cliff edge with no deal. So my third reason, I just don't see how MPs could responsibly consider that as an option. 
But isn't the danger of not having no deal that, you're that you'll have three campaigns in the referendum? You'll have a campaign to leave under the terms of the deal, one to remain and one to abstain from Nigel and co, who say actually they're giving us Brexit in name only versus remain. That's not a proper referendum. And yeah. that undermines the legitimacy of the whole thing from the start. Well, but you could argue that about the first time round as well. You know, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't 100% turnout. There were people who didn't vote. You're always going to have an element no, of that. No, but if you have, an, if you have a, an active abstention campaign that is successful, and remember, I mean, the polling shows that there are some 30-odd percent who at the moment seem to say that no deal is their preferred outcome. That's significant for starters, isn't it? Yes, but you know what? I'm interested in dealing with what we have when we get there. For me, just getting as far as a people's vote will be a great start, and then we campaign with every shred of energy that we have to get people to back Remain. Just hypothetically, if we ended up with a 52-48 vote for Remain on a lower turnout than 2016, what would that have solved? Um, it would mean that the British people had given that active consent for the future of the country, as opposed to what I feel at the moment the deal such as it is, is not what people voted for. Now, the withdrawal agreement, don't forget, isn't a deal. It's the terms on which we leave. Mm -hmm. The deal, the future, comes next. And I just think people have a right to have a say whether that's acceptable or not. So the British public would have told us whether they are content with the future path of the country. OK, but aren't, aren't we then just condemning ourselves to a, a land in which the Conservative Party is divided on Europe, Nigel Farage is polling in the mid 20s. It looks a little bit like 2012 again, just before the Bloomberg speech. Does that settle things, or does that just keep us waiting till we have the decider? Well, I mean, there's two aspects to it in terms of the, you know, does it settle things, best of three sort of argument. Mm. Well, you could, um, and funnily enough, when Vince Cable and Joe Swinson came with Anna and I to see David Littleton last week, um, that was one of the questions um, that we talked to him about, and it is perfectly reasonable to embed the whole shebang of the legislation, everything that comes next, into that legislation. Mm. So there are no years and years then of further debate and votes. You put the whole lot in the, in the referendum piece of legislation. So it's dealt with. There is no best of three. That is it. Um, and that's one way to get around that. So it doesn't become interminable. How can we do another referendum campaign that isn't as divisive and bitterly fought as the last one, or do you think that's just a price we're going to have to pay? No, I think, well, it's, it's an argument for why we want a different kind of politics and a different kind of representative and a different kind of voice out there and, and speaking to people um, not as the elite, not as Project Fear. It's, you know, it's up to the skill and the capability of the politicians to deliver a different message than one that's hope and so that something better that the country can be excited by to put all of this behind us. I'm not saying it's definitely going to be ugly and inelegant. I'm sure it'll be hell. But you have, you have to fight for what you believe in and you have to fight for what you think is best for your country. And if not, you shouldn't be doing this job. What, imagine we voted to remain. What should be done then for leave voters? We just forget about the 17 million or all this? No, absolutely could... not. Absolutely not. And, you know, and that is the last thing. This is not about anybody got it right or they got it wrong. This is about these are the facts as they are now. This is what the deal looks like. This is what would happen to the economy now. Actually, what I want to talk about is why did you vote? Talk to me. Was it immigration? Was it... Um, no job opportunities in your area? Was it you couldn't get your kids into school? Was it the school was underfunded? I want to talk about the reasons why you voted, and that's how you heal a nation, by tackling those sorts of issues. It's not actually, the question is not about Brexit. It's about where's the country gone wrong in your view and what can we do to improve it? But there's no reason you, they should believe you during the campaign if you said that, is there? Because their retort, I imagine, would be what you told us we'd leave if we voted But you're to so leave. cynical. I am. It's true. So become a politician and do it better. <laughs> All right, but because, what I'm saying but that is, is, no, that no, is but, the bottom line. If you believe a legitimate question, we are isn't it? incapable of delivering a positive message for something better in this country, then people need to join in and do it for themselves. Because we only change the trajectory of this country and the type of politics that we have if people who have never thought about it before decide to get involved. Otherwise, it is always going to be the same. But surely it's a legitimate question. How do you convince Leave voters that there's something in it for them? Not just, you know, we can have the argument about leave remain and what it means but you know if you if you buy the argument and i pretty much buy the argument there were lots of factors behind the vote to an leave. Awful lot. how do you i mean part of this is about the messenger isn't it you know i'll go back to what you said about 
the people who ran the first campaign. You need to keep them out of the way, I suppose. But is there a, is there a strategy for me? I suppose it's early days yet. We haven't got a referendum. Yeah, it, it is very early days. But my view, as I say, it's different voices, a different way of communicating. It needs to be positive. It needs to be optimistic. It's about being interested in the details. They're in Kettlethorpe or Wakefield, just as they are in Westminster mm -hmm. or Streatham. Um, and it's a, it's a campaign that tries to unite the country. You know, this, our country is far too focused on the South. I see it. I'm sure you do when you go home. Yeah. It is a different world, and that cannot continue. We have got to spread. You know, in my own constituency in South Cams, you go 10 miles north into Fenland and northern Cambridge, and it is literally a different country. We can't even spread the wealth within our own county. Mm. So there is something fundamentally broken. So it's no wonder that people voted as the way they did. No wonder they wanted to put two fingers up to the establishment down mm -hmm. in London. But if we just accept that's how it's always going to be and we don't try and deliver a different message and use different voices to connect with people, it will never get any better. Apart from Brexit then, I mean, sort of linking into that, what is your top... If I, I mean, I know you haven't got a manifesto or policies yet, but for you personally, what is the policy priority for this country? What is the thing you would most like to do? I mean, there are, there are so many, it's difficult to limit it to one, but our education needs proper funding. Okay. Everything starts from how a child starts in life. Um, in terms of their ability to succeed and get on. Um, and we, yes, the government have put, yes, it is true they've put more funding than ever before, but guess what? There are, you know, it's a growing population, inflation, pensions, national insurance, more send statements for kids with special educational needs. That is where, you know, there were, I was at um, a presentation the other week, the connection between where you were born yeah. and the where you end up is... Social Mobility Commission. Disgraceful. Yeah, no, it was absolutely eye-watering. Yeah. Right, this is the last question before the really serious ones that we end with. <laughs> what would be a good result for you in the European Parliament elections in terms of both vote share and seats? Honestly, haven't done the number crunching, genuinely haven't. Um, I would, I mean, obviously, the ultimate dream is that between us all the Remain parties get just one more vote than the Brexit party. That would be... So vote share? Uh, yes, yeah, vote share. That would be, the, that would be my goal. On which side of the fence do you put the Labour Party on? <laughs> They're probably on the Brexit side, hmm. I'm afraid, these days. OK, now the serious stuff. Are you ready? OK, I am. Beer or Burgundy? Oh, burgundy, but I don't really like Burgundy wine, but I definitely don't like beer. OK, all right, fair enough. If, if you'd said beer versus five bottle of Prosecco, I'd go with the Prosecco. <laughs> We're very mean. Beatles or the Stones? Stones. Cheddar or Camembert? Cheddar. Oasis or Blur? Oh, God, neither. Dreary. Just really <laughs> dreary. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg said neither. Oh, as well God, no. That answers so, that question. Blur, blur, any of them. Many congratulations. <laughs> when we do our statistical analysis of these questions, you'll be in a little box with him. Uh, beef bourguignon or steak and ale pie? Steak and ale pie. And the final most important question, UK in a changing Europe or any other think tank you can think of? <laughs> Any other thing to what? make I can think of. <laughs> Heidi, thank you. We have a little gift for you, which I don't expect you to carry around the campaign trail, but it is. And you don't like oh, beer, so better and better. You have to drink Prosecco. I can, that'll it. be all right. That'll there do for me. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> oh, happy. Quality. I know. Can I fill it up with white wine before I go? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and don't drive home from the station. No.